Health and Wellbeing Queensland acknowledges the Yagara and Turrbal people, the traditional custodians on the lands on which this podcast was recorded, and the traditional custodians on the lands and waters on which you are listening. We pay our respects to the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander elders past and present, for they hold the memories of the traditions, cultures and aspirations of Australia's First Nations people. We as healthcare professionals know very well that it, it's very difficult to get patients to change behaviours because it's hard and it feels unachievable. Welcome to the Clinician's Guide to Healthy Kids, a podcast series for health professionals brought to you by Health and Wellbeing Queensland's Clinician's Hub. I'm your host, Dr Sam Manger, and in this series, we'll be diving deep into the topics that matter most in childhood weight management. We'll be talking to Queensland experts across a variety of topics, including sleep, disordered eating in higher weight children, prevention, and healthy growth with healthy diets. Let's get started. Today, we're diving further into the how, empowering families to make health changes. We have learned what questions we can ask to assess health behaviours that relate to food, to activity and to sleep. But translating this into tangible goals can feel difficult. Everyone knows we should make goals that are smart. Those are specific, measurable, attainable, relevant and time-specific. But putting this into practice can be... Yes, a little trickier. So to help us, we've invited Dr. Sally Crane along to discuss. Sally is a general practitioner who enjoys working closely with children with allergies, restrictive eating habits and weight concerns. Sally collaborates with families to promote and normalise healthy eating habits and the enjoyment of food and activity. Perfect person to have. Thank you so much for joining us, Sally. Thanks, Sam. So Sally, tell us a little bit more about yourself and why you're interested in this area. Sam, um, I'm a GP, as you mentioned, practising part-time in Brisbane's Bayside area, and I've spent over a decade working with family and children of all ages. My original special interest was in allergy management and young children. However, as my patients themselves have grown up, I've really learned to enjoy helping them and their families to develop healthy eating habits and activity levels. I'm a mother of two school-aged children, both of whom developed allergies in early infancy, and so I understand the difficulties in managing food restrictions and eating behaviours and recognise the challenge of encouraging kids to make healthy choices. Yeah, that's great. Thanks. So, so you obviously bring a combination of professional experience and lived experience as well as a, yes. as a mother of two. That's, that's very useful. So how important is family-focused health behaviours in the prevention management of unhealthy weight gain in children? I think it's imperative that any step, strategies that you plan to implement involve the entire family. Whilst the primary issue may be with one child, there usually are a number of underlying factors within the family unit that may tend to promote unhealthy weight gain. So if we can encourage these behaviour changes to incorporate the entire family, then I do believe you're more likely to have a positive outcome in the long run. And of course, when people present to their health professional, they're often, you know, the family will be there or at least a parent will be there. So what do you find of the, your, say, top three conversation starters when they're in there in the clinic to start opening up that conversation, that dialogue and introduce health in a, in a weight neutral way? This is tricky, Sam. I think a lot of this comes with practice um, and, and just developing communication skills in general. Um, but um, a question I like to use, particularly with middle school age children, is what sort of things make you feel healthy and strong? This takes the focus away from food and weight and, and all the negativity that we don't want to promote. 
Um, and it's always interesting to hear the answers to that question, but more often than not, uh, the children tend to identify a particular sport or exercise, the topics of which can be really helpful to build rapport and, and then to move on in conversation with. Yeah, that's, that's a really great tip, uh, especially around rapport, because we obviously need to develop that relationship before we open up to potentially more sensitive topics. That's and it, you mentioned yeah. there around using a strengths-based approach. So what do they actually enjoy or what do they feel that's strong right. in? That sort yeah. of stuff. So you're opening up making much more comfortable as well yes, there too. that's right. And so secondly, another conversation, conversation starter could be, what does healthy look like to you? Again, giving you a focus point and perhaps leads to a goal that the child or family may wish to attain. And thirdly, you know, what, what foods do you enjoy eating that also make you feel healthy? This leads into a positive conversation about food and then focus more on the strengths around, you know, food and activity. Okay, that's great. So strengths-based approach, uh, what does healthy look like to you and, and what foods do you enjoy? So very much starting in that, mm. that positive frame, mm. yeah. So how do you use behaviour change in weight management in your clinic and practice? Uh, generally, my focus here will be on the family, not just the child. So this may involve strategising daily routines, including regular meal times and consistency with meals. I like to encourage families to sit down together for at least one meal of the day, if that's possible. And I know that feels completely impossible often to families. Um, I try to engage children to identify a few activities that they enjoy and then promote these being implemented into their daily routines. Uh, for, for families, again, encouraging daily and weekly planning can be really helpful. For example, meal planning for the upcoming week, planning around busy days and scheduling exercise and sport. We need to make that routine and part of their daily schedule again. Most importantly, this all needs to be part of a collaborative consultation in order to best encourage behaviour change. So I do like to encourage the families to really come up with this planning. I don't want it to come from me. Mm -hmm. So when you're actually in a consult, you'll be sort of saying, how can we you know, build this into our life? What are, the, what are the barriers? What are the practical facilitators to this? So you, right. you'll ask the question, but encourage them to come up with the answer rather than it being a sort of prescriptive exercise. Absolutely. Again, we need to focus on the, that family environment because it's, families are busy. Mm. <laughs> we have to make it work for everyone. Yeah, and it's usually unique. And that, that leads us really to the, the next common point you mentioned that uh, it can be hard to to do this. So talk us through why changing behaviour can be difficult, can be hard for families. Mm. Um, well, I think it's hard for families and for us as well. And we as healthcare mm. professionals know very well that it it's very difficult to get patients to change behaviours because it's hard and it feels unachievable both for families and, and for us. Um, kids have learned behaviours that they don't und and they don't understand why changes need to happen. Socioeconomic factors need to be considered. And as I mentioned earlier, parents are busy, families are busier than ever. So understanding all the, the knowledge um, that needs to be involved, access, financial strain, time constraints, these all contribute to the difficulty um, in changing behaviour. But I think with time and support and building good rapport, we are best placed to make positive changes happen. Mm, yeah, you mentioned the, the knowledge. So there's obviously varying tiers to behaviour, isn't there? And as you said, one is, is knowledge and certainly having some good resources or good professionals that we can refer to to build in that knowledge and then having ongoing support with people, regular follow-up and, and 
reviewing those uh, barriers and reflecting and seeing where those activities, you mentioned activities before that you could, families can do. Do you mean things like, you know, cooking activities or food preparation activities, things related to food, or do you just mean any family activity is a good activity? Oh, I think any family activity is great because if we're, co- you know, encouraging a positive well-being, then that will, you know, that will um, assist in any aspect here. But certainly, you know, uh, get children involved in cooking with mum or dad, um, activities that are outside the home. I'm a big promoter of parkrun. I think it's fabulous for children. Um, but, um, you know, going for bike rides, doing anything, but, but these these all need to be planned into a routine. I think if we don't schedule these activities, they don't happen. We don't, we don't prioritise it. Yeah, I think it's very interesting that because we often think with these conversations uh, that we have to go direct. We have to talk specifically and direct about weight, but often well-being is a very indirect path. There's lots of things that we do in our life that encourage well-being, social connection, the, the activity or you know, whatever it is, that then indirectly come into building the well-being of the family and then being more open and able to talk about you know, what are we eating tonight, let's cook together, let's do this together, but it flows into that as opposed to feeling... You know, it's almost sort of artificial and sort of synthetic in its sort of A to B approach. So, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So what would you say to someone who's not ready, though, to change their health behaviours? Like, how do we approach the apparently unmotivated uh, patient in particular? You know, young people can be cautious, uh, but families in particular. These consultations can be particularly hard, but I think we can still make a positive change. This, of course, will depend on your rapport with the patient and family, and this will all take time, and I think this takes practice with any, for any cl- clinician. We all know how to employ our motivational interviewing techniques. Um, often in these circumstances, I will just let them know about support services and options that are available to them, and I'll leave the door open for those patients to follow up with me at any time. Depending on the child or family, though, I might say, what if I give you just one goal to focus on before I see you next? Mm-hmm. They're usually open to it, particularly the child. So whether this is just making one little change to their diet or adding in an activity or something that brings happiness to the child, again, focusing on well-being, it, it doesn't matter. It just it provides a check-in point, a goal and positivity and it reminds them that you're there to support them. Yeah, that's that's great. I think with this, a few things when I think about unmotivated inverted commas, because there's almost stigma associated with that, because I think everyone's motivated in something, you know, right now, you may not be motivated to change your food habits, but they may be motivated in another aspect. Mm-hmm. And as we just said, well-being can often be a, an indirect path that you take. So you can start improving someone's just family time, playing games together, for example, but then that makes dinner time a lot easier because yes. it's more harmonious in the family. So... It doesn't even have to be, okay, you're not motivated about changing your food intake, for example, therefore we'll give up, you know, hands in the air sort of thing. It's a case of actually, let's find out, going back to your original points uh, around the conversation starters, what are things you enjoy, what are strengths-based approaches, what does health look like to you? Mm. Because then you can actually find out where people are motivated and then get there whichever way, you know. But as long as you've got that ball rolling in that direction, people often, once they get a taste of health, they'll often want a little bit more. Mm. And I, I, I think it's important also as clinicians we can feel a little bit uh, when, we, when, we, when we responded to with, with seemingly unmotivated behaviour. It can feel a bit uh, disheartening mm. as a clinician and it's quite important for us to remember that 
you know, different seeds take different time to germinate. You know, not everyone will just change That's the right. second you've recommended mm-hmm. it. And we need to, one, be patient with our patients, but be patient with ourselves as well. I think there's a self-care aspect here um, and a little bit of a practice what we preach aspect as well. As you said, it can be hard for us to change behaviours. So when we learn to improve our own health as well, then we'll mm-hmm. notice actually, you know, there are ways, you know, lived experience pops into that too. We'll be back after this short break. The Gather and Grow program focuses on improving food insecurity in remote Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities in the Torres Strait, Cape York and lower Gulf regions of Queensland. They're working hard to build the capacity and capability of remote food stores and engage with communities and community organisations to identify priorities and lead actions that will improve access to healthy food and drinks. Find out more on the Health and Wellbeing Queensland website by searching Gather and Grow. And now back to the show. Do you find things like games or even competitions within a family are a fun thing to start? Because they often talk about gamification in, in behaviour change. Oh, I think I, I haven't tried it myself, but I think it could be really useful. Uh, I guess, again, it, it's sort of creating goals in a way, isn't it? And it's um, it's providing a challenge and, and it's fun. Kids love that. Um, and if they get to challenge their parents even better that's fantastic for them and that can be in any form whether it's games in the home or again perhaps setting goals outside whether they're sporting activity games that can be helpful as well yeah so who could uh, do the most uh, jumps in a day or something i'm sure they'd be beat their parents that's always a good motivating factor for kids parents (laughs) (laughs) what are your top three phrases you try and avoid using when trying to motivate children or their families Um, I I think overall it's important to use sensitive language and we've talked about this in previous podcasts and this just avoids any blame or stigmatisation and whether I don't know if their phrases are such but I do avoid words particularly so words that signify signify poor choices for example bad food junk food you know instead focus on words such as sometimes foods or again we go back to those foods that make you feel healthy Um, I usually always avoid focus on weight. I say usually because there are exceptions to this and that may be when a child is particularly underweight and we're actually, well, there's necessity to monitor their gains. Um, But also never using the words fat, skinny, any other phrases that may have a negative impact on body image is particularly important. So you've mentioned a few there around, obviously, some words there, fat, skinny, that that hopefully goes without saying, but mm. it's good to say anyway. Mm. And then, but weight, weight is a hard, hard one to avoid uh, using, especially when we're in some ways encouraging weight uh, to to be a, a you know sixth vital sign, as mm. it were. So how do you flip that? What words do you use instead or what, what key phrases do you find work well uh, when in in this conversation and dialogue that you're having? So... It's, again, it's quite tricky. I think it will really come down to the patient, to be honest. And I, often it might, um, you know, it might come down to how they're feeling in their clothes so, or how they're feeling within their activities. So are you feeling healthy? Do you feel like you have lots of energy? Do you feel comfortable in what you're wearing? Mm. Um, you know, again, when we go back to their goals focus, have, um, have they been able to achieve that goal? And I think say that's a sporting goal or another activity goal, uh, you would like to hope that's come from then perhaps that weight management. I don't want to say loss of weight, but perhaps that's because their weight is better managed, their diet is better managed. Um, 
again, this will all come down to, I think, the rapport you have. Mm. I think the feel question is a good one, though, because we often are talking about how do you, you know, what do you think about this mm. or, you know, what is this? And they're obviously valid questions to some degree, but as we've clearly identified in this conversation, that sometimes thoughts can not always be positive <laughs> about, you know, about one's yeah. perception or their uh, opinion of their own life or health behaviours. And so, but feeling is a very interesting question because it's such a, a visceral, you know, question. That you say, how do I feel about this? Mm. And, uh, you know, how do I feel about, you know, my my uh, my body or how would I feel about my health? How do I feel about my lifestyle? That opens up. I think it's a much more open question that's, that is less judgmental because you're curious. You're, in, you're, you're sort right. of inviting their responses as Absolutely. opposed to... I, it, perhaps it's just me, but when you say something like, how, what do you think about your weight? It sounds like you've got... There's a foregone conclusion there. You've already sort of... Told, there's already judgment. There's in already judgment yeah. in, in built in that question. Mm-hmm. So... Mm-hmm. So how do you feel about you know your health and, and other aspects is, is a nice open question. Uh, so so follow-up is really important for any goals made, and we've, we've made that clear already. But we know how busy many GPs like yourself are, and, and myself, of course. So how frequently would you try and review someone after they've made behaviour change goals with you? Um, I would suggest review appointments quite soon after setting goals in those initial appointments. Uh, and, you know, say two to three weeks, scheduling. So short-term achievable goals and early follow-up is more likely to keep patients accountable. I like to actually walk out to reception and book those appointments with them and and hopefully involve the nurse in that as well for that next appointment. Um, But again, I think if they've got that um, very um, fast turnaround, uh, this is more on their radar. They're actually more likely to turn up. Yeah, I think it's one of the principles that I've seen consistent with behaviour change. It's such a simple thing, uh, but is the concept of default. You know, so that you know, it's not that you need these appointments. This is like my, I normalise them. All my patients, we're going through this healthy weight or um, health journey. Then I'm going to see. The, I like to see them every two weeks for a few months, and then I'll we space it out just to really make sure we can support and get the ball rolling and see some early wins and successes and make you feel like you're you're going in the direction you want to go with your health. Mm-hmm. Um, and but that's that's quite important to highlight, I think, because sometimes certainly I remember in GP training many many moons ago was this idea that you know we we do a script you know for hypertension or something high blood pressure and then we're like well that's got five repeats i'll see in six months Mm -hmm. so we've got this sort of six month attitude built into us and we think that maybe health behaviors is similar you need to uh improve x health behavior i'll see in six months it just doesn't work like humans are so much more complex we've got so many more competing challenges and that seeing someone in six months is very unlikely to lead to behavior change Mm -hmm. if we're going to really sincerely do that we have to see them on a much more regular basis and, and problem solve as things go, you know, and then reflect. Mm-hmm. We'll be back after this short message. Unhealthy weight is one of our greatest public health challenges. Two in three Queensland adults and one in four children live with overweight or obesity. We need to shift the dial. That's why Health and Wellbeing Queensland has created Clinicians Hub for You, our clinical workforce. Clinicians Hub is a digital ecosystem of initiatives, resources and tools, including this podcast series. For multidisciplinary health professionals to support best practice prevention, identification, treatment and management of overweight or obesity, and it offers a wide variety of clinical tools and training to help you transform health for children, adults and families.
Find out how Clinicians Hub can help you at hw.qld.gov.au forward slash hub. And now back to the show. So is it worth trying to make changes at a primary healthcare level? So see, if we if we feel they still need to see a dietitian or, or go on to a specialised weight management service? Yes, absolutely, I, I believe so. Um, anecdotally, I would suggest that only about 25% of patients will actually make an appointment with the dietitian or other specialised weight management service. And it's it's not an it's not enough. So we need to be driving these initial changes until they're ready to move to that next step. So involving other support people as well, such as the teacher, kindy teacher, psychologist, or or booking case um, management plans. Uh, however, it is we we really need to be driving the changes. Um, but even as they move on to the the next service, dietitian, the specialised weight management services. Our, our role is in primary healthcare. We are, we are still those coordinators. We still need to be checking in and, and realistically we are going to be, hopefully, these patients' GPs for a really long time. So um, they need to still be able to um, uh, have that opportunity to step back in with us. Um, we, they, they need to be able to feel supported by us. Um, and I think we can make some very positive changes with the right language. Yeah, absolutely. You mentioned there the case management and the case conference item numbers for those who who are and aren't aware are, are, are very valid options and, and, you know, reasonably well imbursed for GPs and now also since the last, I think, year or two due to some uh, good lobbying, um, allied health, dietitians, physios, etc., can now also have an item number that they can claim so it is much more fair for all. So this is actually a really good tool to perhaps consider scheduling for some of your more complex patients. And uh, that the, the basis of that is also good communication. Mm. You know, we've got to be able to communicate and have not just one-line referrals off to our colleagues, our allied health colleagues, but actually thinking, you know, what's the, what, what's the conversations we had, what are the goals that we set in this appointment, so that there's a synchrony between the different plans. Because sometimes what you get in multidisciplinary care is everyone's got their own plans. Mm. What we're aiming for here is interdisciplinary yes. care, where we, we actually share the goals, and the, and the patient is obviously 100% on board with that, but each of the professionals is supporting it from their own level of expertise. One thing I wonder about is whether you, uh, you know, there's obviously our one-to-one care and we've been talking about that quite a bit, but I do wonder about how you might use uh, the microenvironment, so the, the shape or style or flow of your clinic itself or even the other staff in the clinic to support, again, not just conversations um, around, you know, health, well, yes, conversations about health changes, but uh, so not just weight, but just overall well-being, do you, especially with the paediatric or child and adolescent populations. Is there anything you sort of do within your environments to make it more suitable or more facilitative? I think I, I, I do like to try and involve our nurse and other um, staff within the practice. I don't think that's something that we actually do well, to be mm. honest. I think that time is a big constraint there for a lot of GPs. Um, but... You know, it would take five minutes for, say, the practice nurse to check in and just give some some support. Again, it's just another positive face for that family. Um, whether, again, whether you've got a, a psychologist or other um, health professionals within your practice, I would I would absolutely involve all of those if you can. And and I think also just you know. Um, um, 
look, sometimes I think particularly in my practice, we like to um, ensure that every patient knows one of the other doctors. So mm. just just if they need someone as a backup, just, mm. you know, if I'm not there, they've got someone else they can check in with at any time. That's a really nice idea. I like that actually, mm. because these days uh, it's quite common for, for patients to have you know, one or two GPs within that practice that they will see. And I think it's a really nice idea to almost, if you possibly can, facilitate that introduction kind of nice and early or at least show them the picture in the bio so yes. they know, <laughs> you know, they're going to be seeing. The nurse point is something I've really incorporated into my general practice in the last well, couple of years, but is to have that a nurse blocked off, even just for half an hour, uh, you know, once every two days or something, which is not a huge amount of time to block off, but just have quick five-minute phone calls with, with patients mm-hmm. that you've set these sort of goals and just give them a call. Partly it's a behaviour change technique, just a simple support, how you going, check in, problem solve. Mm-hmm. But it also just shows you care. That's right. And I think that's really important because when the therapeutic relationship is strong, we know the evidence is quite clear that the behaviour outcomes and psychological outcomes are better. Mm-hmm. Um, and so simply demonstrating that we're it's not just a GP service, it's a primary care service and we all care about that, about the patient and, and their outcomes. So this takes me to my next and last question, which is around, do you have any favourite or key resources for listeners, which are clinicians or health professionals and or patients? And partly I'm thinking they're also around the concept of social prescribing, which is obviously prescribing inverted commas to uh, things in our community. So NGOs or community groups and uh, you know family groups, mm-hmm. mums groups, you know dads groups, that sort of stuff, which can obviously and quite commonly be a very effective way to uh, encourage health change and, and well-being. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's really important that families are aware of um, um, mothers' groups, family groups, and often they can be accessed through uh, the child health nurse. Um, they're, within your community, there's always bound to be some other support service. Often they're free. Um, I know certainly our, in our area we have exercise groups uh, for families. Um, again, I mentioned Park Runner earlier. That's a great, easy, free prescription that you know can involve an entire family and you don't have to be any particular fitness level to, to be involved in that. Um, but I think also resources that... Um, the practitioner can use as well. Um, the, the Raising Children website is very useful and the more recent Growing Good Habits site by Health and Wellbeing Queensland can be useful for both healthcare prof- professionals and patients and families. Both of those provide links on healthy eating behaviours, physical activity, sleep requirements, etc. I think it's definitely worth spending some time scrolling through these and becoming familiar with those links so that you can share them with your patients. And I often do like to actually go through those with patients so that they know exactly where they're looking. Great. All right. Well, thank you so much for your time, Sally. I'll just highlight a few little things there, which I think were some really useful things that I'm going to take home. And I hope the listeners out there will also take home. So some of those points really starting early is around strengths-based. What does health look like? Having these open-ended questions and what are the what are the foods and the practices in your health that you actually enjoy? Encouraging a whole family approach, which can include planning or activities and make sure there's time for the family to be together. Considering what some of those barriers are around whether it's a knowledge problem or a, a 
habit or you know where can we actually support what changes can we make look after ourselves and practice what we preach is always important uh, remembering that there's lots of things a person does in their life so they may not be motivated in one area but they will likely be motivated in others and if you can turn that into a bit of fun fun is always good try and make it fun and then of course use our expert allied health colleagues whether that's through case conferencing or any other process and of course our excellent practice nurses to support people and consider where you're going to uh, where you can refer and uh, the beautiful services out there in the community so thank you once again sally for your time today thanks sam